Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 3-258. Spring has arrived in New England. The snow is receding, leaving wet and fetid ground barely contained and ready to burst forth in a riot of life. And truth be told, we don't really have spring in New England. We have winter and summer. I own a couple of spring jackets, but I never wear them. In the fall, it gets cold and dark so fast that there is no time or place for a light coat. In the spring, when the sun comes out and the snow and the icicles slide away, you don't need or want a coat. And that's part of our challenge with the Boston Marathon in April. The rest of you may be thinking, why are these soft people complaining about a beautiful 80-degree sunny day? Isn't that just another beautiful spring day? Yes, but for us, it's an instantaneous 60-degree swing. We've trained our bodies to hoard the heat calories deep under layers of technical fabric. We clutch that body heat deep in our cores. Then we are thrust naked out into the sun like fish out of water. Frankly, anything over 50 is too hot for me. But it is spring. It's a happy time, a hopeful time, a time of new plans and rebirth. And the last few weeks, I know, have been a challenge for some of us. And I know some of my friends have experienced loss and struggle, and their resolve has been tested. And my heart really goes out to them. And it certainly makes me feel petty when I mourn my old body's apparent inability to remember how to run and race. Yeah, my workouts continue to be lacking strength and race fitness, and I'll talk about that in a piece today. But it is spring, and spring is the time of rebirth, and hopefully for those who have been taken from us, even then we know others are born or reborn, and it's part of the human cycle, part of what makes us human. And maybe out there, a new runner is finding the new strength that I am losing. Somewhere out there, a pudgy 30-something lifts their eyes from the toil of life and takes those first wobbly, plodding steps and feels indestructible. And that's my spirit in them. We are all unworthy prophets, and sometimes we feel like we don't make a difference. But if we only touch one person, it's worth it. If we only impact one soul in our ministry, it's worthwhile. Don't ever forget that you have the ability to change yourself, and in doing so, change the world. And you have the ability to impact that one person, to be that messenger of hope and joy. And you and I, we exist as part of a whole. We give strength to the whole. We take strength from the whole. Spring is a time of rebirth. We have a great show for you today. I have a chat with Pastor Dean Smith about his efforts to use running to transform the lives of his community. In section one, I'm going to give you some thoughts on permission. In section two, I'm going to analyze my fitness and what it means for Boston. 
It's been a long winter, but as I look out my window, there is no snow. There is sunshine and the chance of being reborn with the spring. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Permission. You don't need permission to change the world. I read an article last week by Mark Cuban. In it, he talks about his first couple jobs and how he ended up where he is. Where he is, by the way, is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks basketball team and one of those internet millionaires that came out of the 90s, maybe billionaires, I don't know. And in his story, he talks about how he was fired from his first couple jobs. Not because he did the job poorly, but because he did things without asking for permission. Culturally, we are all bound by the assumption that we need to ask for permission. And today, I want to talk to you about this. And I want you to consider that cultural artifact and whether or not you're giving it too much power over your life. In this article, Mr. Kuban got fired from his first jobs by trying to do too much, by doing things above and beyond the defined scope of the job, acting above his pay grade, as they say in the Army. In one case, his boss told him not to pick up a big check from a client, and Mark reasoned that no one in a company would be mad when he showed up with a big check. And Mark got fired for picking up the check because he didn't have permission. And that was more important to his boss than the business results. But the point of the story was that Mark was grateful to those bosses for firing him and glad he did things without permission and glad he got fired because all those things defined him and forced him down his path. Those things, those attributes, ended up making him a very successful person in business. There's a famous quote that has been attributed to many different people, but it goes, it's easier to ask forgiveness than to get permission. I have personal experience with this recently. I'm helping a young person look for their first job, and this young person was horrified when I said to just pick up the phone and start calling CEOs and pitching. And she said, what if they get mad? I don't have any experience. How can I call a CEO? You see, she was afraid of breaking this strong cultural barrier. And I said, look, give yourself permission to call. They won't get mad at you. Most executives love it when young people take initiative and are positively aggressive. And who cares if they get mad at you anyhow? You don't have the job today. What's the worst thing that can happen? You won't have the job after the call. But I will tell you that executives are impressed by people who take the initiative. And this is the shortest line between you and a job. How many of you would be willing to take that path, the shortest path to a job? Or would you spend hours polishing your resume and soliciting headhunters and combing job boards and help wanted ads? In other words, you'd spend all your energy seeking permission instead of hunting for what you want. Here's another example. I am on the receiving end of a person who complains about their job and the owners of the company that they work for. At some point in this conversation, if you can call being whined at incessantly a conversation, I'll interrupt and I'll say, if you don't like your job, why don't you do something else? In fact, I can't believe you pour so much energy into this job that causes you so much consternation. 
and they will be shocked. They will respond with, but what else could I do? Who would hire me? They're stuck in the assumption that jobs are things that you are given. They are things you need permission to do. So much of this is just programmed into us from the day we are born that somehow we're not worthy, that we need to beg and grovel to higher authorities for our bread and circus. Take your head out of your backside, my friend. You don't need permission. You don't need permission to do what you love. You don't need permission to be happy. You don't need permission to love. I'm sorry, but you define your story. No one has to give you permission. You give yourself permission. If you really think that you need permission, then fine. Here it is. I give you permission to do what makes you happy. I give you permission to be a fully functional, fulfilled, and empathic member of the world community. Feel better? Probably not, because I'm not the one who you need permission from. You are who you need to get permission from. So why not give yourself permission? Here's an exercise. Write down on a piece of paper, I give myself permission to be happy and fulfilled, or something like that. Fold it up and carry it around with you and read it every time you feel like you need to kowtow to some institution or deity or person. Waiting for permission is deeply ingrained in our culture. Why? Because it's another way for the people who have power to create barriers to those who want it institutionalize those barriers with religion and government and family, and you, my friends, unwittingly reinforce the shackles of your own feudal system by seeking permission. And why do we put up with and condone our oppression of permission? Because it's comfortable. It gives us a context for our lives. Why do we find it so hard to give ourselves permission? Because that means breaking the context. Without the context to fall back on, we feel lost. We feel unanchored. It's about choice, my friends. You can choose to give yourself permission. That decision is the easy part. The hard part is the repercussion of that permission where it intersects with the permission-giving institutions of your world. They may not react kindly. Another story from business. When Henry Ford came up with his idea for the people's car, the Model A, the Model T, he had to go to a board that owned the patent for the manufacture of gasoline automobiles called the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers. He had to ask permission to build his cars, and they turned him down. So Henry started building his cars anyhow, and he took them to court, and he eventually won. When you ask permission, you're setting yourself up to get turned down. But if you believe in what you're doing, you can give yourself permission and just do it. There's good news here, too. You could be part of the permission vanguard. The world that we live in today is shifting away from a permission-based environment. No publisher needs to give you permission to publish your novel anymore. You don't need to go hat in hand to Macmillan Press anymore. If you have a couple hundred bucks you can be on Amazon too. But we as humans are still stuck in the sticky webs of the institutions of permission that we grew up with. You may need permission to drive a car on the public roads or to fly a jet plane in the public sky, but you don't need permission for one big thing. You don't need permission to change yourself. You may need courage and you may need help, 
but you don't need permission to change yourself. And when you dig up the courage to change yourself, you also change the world. And now for today's featured interview. So, Dean, why don't you give me the uh, the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and where you are? Well, we're smack dab in the middle of southeastern Montana, northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation, the capital city of Lame Deer, Montana. We've been out here going on 11 years ministering to the northern Cheyenne Indian. Beautiful valley. Actually, we're down in a valley on three sides and uh, with a beautiful people completely different culture, very high unemployment, a lot of situations and circumstances. And uh, I'm the Baptist minister out here with the Baptist church. Didn't plan on being the minister. We just knew that we're originally from Florida. We felt a calling by God to go into the mission field. And so we thought we were going to only be gone a year heading toward Montana and then doing a circle back to Florida where we had a very good life. Uh, family was close, good job, everything, and uh, we got to uh, here. We never left. I sensed a little bit of Atlanta in your uh, accent there, so maybe yeah, maybe northern Florida. Uh, southern. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, southern Florida grew up and then moved to southwest Florida. After 10, 11 years in Montana, you lose that southern twang. And yeah. Every now and then, I get a privilege from the pulpit of saying y'all. Yeah. <laughs> They look at me kind of funny, but they accept it. <laughs> yeah, the weather's a little bit different in uh, Montana than Southern Florida, too, huh? Yeah, um, very much different. Our first winter, I was told that it's, it was very mild, so God was watching out for us. Since then, we've experienced some 50 and 60 degree below weather, and gets kind of crazy. But other than that, I think we kind of hibernate in the winter. Yeah, so Dean, we were we met on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even a couple of months ago now. I don't remember, but we started talking, and you were talking about the tribe and how you know the tribe's almost at risk of losing itself in a couple of generations because there's just a lot of sort of hopelessness or or non-direction there, and how you're trying to use running as part of your ministry to counter that. Yep. I cannot bring along someone in their spiritual walk, and Native Americans are truly spiritual people, and that's one of the reasons I love them so much, but you can't bring someone along spiritually if their physical or mental condition is, is not in any type of good shape. And as runners, you know, I think we know that. If our mental outlook isn't that great, our run or our race isn't going to be that great either. So we kind of get stuck in these cycles Ministers are supposed to only serve the spiritual side of man, while counselors are serving the mental side, and your coaches and trainers only the physical side. And I don't believe that to be true. It's interesting because I, you know, again, I don't know a lot about the culture uh, of the northern tribes, but I know that some of the other Native American cultures, um, running is is really important and culturally endemic, if you will. You know, I know. For example, the history of the Boston Marathon, right, with uh, Longboat and some of the local Native Americans here, and also the, you know, the guys in north northwest, Me- uh, I'm sorry, northern Mexico that we always hear about, right? Yeah. And, and it's, so, I mean, is it part, is it something that's already there that you can sort of leverage? 
Absolutely, it's already here. It's a talent that's already born within most of them. And they really, I mean, our people really have a desire to do it. But with the hopelessness and the despair, the breakdown of families, uh, low standards of education, not continuity and coaching activities in organized school, you know, it's just not practiced. It's not consistent. We are a very inconsistent community. And uh, our kids, our adults, our people need consistency and just the littlest of things brings up self-esteem. My idea is to uh, engage some of our adults and some of our kids and some of our teens and get them going and training and get them to run first a mile and then to compete in a uh, 5K. And have you seen any uh, transformations through this process yet? No, I have not, actually, because personally I'm going through my own transformation uh, and coming back to running. In the spring, we will be starting a running club with that. And I've already talked with several individuals and working with uh, two young boys already from our church and can already see the vast benefits that, that it'll reap, mainly because this one young kid, he's a runner. And uh, he loves it, and I can't slow him down. I can't stop him, and it's just helped him immensely. But I don't have him on any training program as of yet. But one thing that I've noticed since I've started to bring out running and talking about it, more of our people are starting to get into it, several of our church members and that kind of thing. And so it's just kind of all coming together, and something more organized will definitely be on the books in about four or five weeks as we put this thing together. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Well, I've talked to a lot of organizations that, that leverage running for community purposes, right? Like the girls uh, on the run thing and the yeah. uh, the homeless uh, folks in Baltimore and D.C. It, it seems to work because it's not just giving people stuff and it's not preaching at people. It's providing them with a way, a, a rung on the ladder to grasp. Absolutely. And, and the self-esteem to hang the rest of that stuff on. Yep, absolutely. It's important. It's crucial. A lot of counseling that I do, regardless of what kind it is, I've gotten to the point that it's time to stop talking and time to start doing. How you do that, I think, is uh, you start getting in some sort of a physical shape, exercising, and uh, start out slow and build up little goals, building your self-esteem, your outlook changes, um, your attitude changes. Pretty soon you need less counseling because you're you're modeling what is being talked about, uh, what needs to be done. I say it all the time. I will help you. I am here to help you, but I cannot take the steps for you. You must take the step and I'll walk beside you. Yeah, and I, you know, one particular organization I've talked to a couple of times uh, is called Back on My Feet out here on the yeah. East Coast. And I think they're in Chicago now, too. Um, but they've been very successful because they have that action-oriented step, right? So they say, you you can do this, but you got to show up. And we're going yeah, out at 5 a.m. And if you show up at 5 a.m., we'll do everything we can to pull you through it. But you've got to show up. Yep. And they've had some amazing success, especially with substance abuse and alcoholism. Yep. Yep. And we have so much uh, substance and drug abuse here in our community that it's it's just astronomical actually and 
And uh, now we're going through a season of suicide and suicide attempts. In the last month, we've had two young ladies commit suicide. And so it is just simply imperative that we do something different because absolutely the old way of doing things or what's been done in the past is not working. We're three parts. We're physical, mental, and spiritual. We need to work on all three parts of our person in order to have healing and transform into what our creator, what God desires us to be. And before true healing ever takes place, I can work on my body and get it into shape and run my PR of a marathon. um, But if my outlook isn't that great, um, I doubt if I'm going to do it again. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, But which do you think comes first? What's the precedence between physical, mental, and spiritual? Well, uh, the Bible tells us that physical exercise just doesn't really warrant that much as compared to building a spiritual foundation. And I totally agree with the Word of God, of course, but we use that, I think, as a crutch not to work on our body or use it as an excuse. And I think it's all three equal. You know, we use our mind every day, we use our body every day, and uh, our spiritual aspect is probably our least worked on. But I think that if we, and of course where I'm at and where I'm coming from, the spiritual aspect of our lives, I believe is the most important, but it is the least worked on. So I think that if we work on our body and our mind and our spirit at some, well, here's the way I look at it. Um, a tripod, a telescope, you're looking at the planets, and if one of those legs is out of whack, you're not going to get a clear view of what you're trying to view far away. Those legs have to be in balance, and we're the same way. Uh, We're a three-legged tripod, and all three have to be in balance in order to live a life that is contented and happy and fulfilled. And spiritual leaders don't concentrate enough on the mind and the body, Counselors don't concentrate enough on the spiritual and da-da-da-da-da. And so I'm trying to concentrate on all three. We're a very spiritual people here. I dare say that if our people got back to their roots of truly spiritual life and and prayer, uh, they could teach uh, us non-Indians a few things about prayer and worship. No, I think you're right. It's very spiritual people. I think that's what draws, that's part of the mystique around it. Absolutely. And fear. Yeah. <laughs> And the, and that's uh, an entirely different subject right there. So what? Okay, well, what do you mean by fear? Well, uh, non-Indians are afraid of the Indian religion and natives are afraid of Christianity. And so, you know, we have that barrier that's still very prevalent today, at least in our tribe, mainly because I work with our tribe. And so I'm not familiar with all the others, but I know that that is very, very prevalent. And, and it's nothing but, but fear, just stupid fear. That's all it boils down to. Well, that's a, that's a lot. Fear is a big barrier in everyone's life, and, yes, it is. and that's probably one of the things. And you talk about your tripod, and any one of those legs, though, can for an individual can be the catalyst. And yes. once you move the catalyst, you move the keystone, then you can get growth in, in the individual as a whole across all those areas, right? Yeah, perhaps that desire to become balanced um, is there because of cat- the catalyst moving on one part of that tripod. But again, I can't bring along anyone spiritually in their relationship with God if they have repressed memories from a, a past that was traumatic. So healing needs to take place there. Yeah. Or, you know, or if their body isn't in the greatest of shape. And I'm not talking about any ideal shape. I'm just talking about you know, good nutrition and um, 
healthy. Know, yeah, just healthy. Yeah, and we are we are very unhealthy here. Disease runs rapid. Um, many of our people die. If you look at the the lifespans of of Native Americans, it's far far shorter than other people groups, and and it boils down to outlook and attitude. You know, if you're hopeless, <laughs> you know you're. You're not going to be in the best of shape anyway, so. Right, but did and you- now I'm speaking generally um, as a whole. We do have individuals that are doing very well. We do have families that are doing very well, but generally speaking, we're doing very poorly as a people. Yeah, and it, it's a multi generational thing. Absolutely. How do you break do you- out of that trap? Um, one little step at a time, and that's precisely what it is. One little step at a time. Every little thing is a victory to be celebrated. A 35-year-old man getting a driver's license for the very first time. A 19-year-old young adult receiving his GED as compared to his diploma. Whatever it might be, a certificate for finishing a six-week course in something. One little step at a time. And that's what it boils down to. And for the non-Indian, the non-native, we don't have the patience for it. And I think that's part of the problem. For our Native brethren, it's a very perplexing and challenging situation and circumstance. It really is. It's just so so much goes into the makeup of our Native American people. It's, it's just hard to express unless you are physically here and, and witness and become a part of what is going on. What can people or institutions do to help well, I think it's a change of attitude. Um, I have plenty of people call me and say, you know, I've got all this stuff that I just want to go, you know, bring up and or send up or ship up to give to the uh, Indian, to give to Native American. You know, can we do that? And and uh, I truly try to dissuade that. And we have a very strong ministerial association here between a Baptist church, Lutheran church, Catholic church, Mennonite we all uh, agree in the same latitude that, you know, don't come and do for us, but come and do with us. Right, um, right. We have a general mentality outside of the reservation that the poor little Indian needs all this help. And really what's happening is it's keeping our people down. And so our people, they generally feel that they deserve it because of what happened pre-reservation days. And then our people abhor it because they want to be their own people. And so already they're in confusion. And so we just mix into that problem. And so we just need to understand that that it's a long-term process. The Native American people are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people. It is multi-generation, as you say, Chris. It takes a long time to break down those barriers. And we just got to stop making excuses and just break down those barriers, but it's going to take a while. So you got to take that first step. It's small steps and then always, you know, it's two steps forwards and one back. We all fall. We all fail. We need to be there when when each of us fails and falls and pick pick them up again and and start all over. It's beautiful country where you are. Yes. Yep. I would think that some sort of trail running or getting out on the... In, into nature would fit perfectly with the spiritual nature of the individuals. Yep. We, we have land out here that hasn't been tread on by human foot in over 150 years. And so it's, it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. We're out in the middle of nowhere. 
I can't wait, you know, to get some of our, our kids outside running in an organized way because I just know exactly, precisely what it's going to do for them and with them. I know what it's going to do. Even with our adults, I know what I know. I know what's going to happen because I've seen it. I've had glimpses of it with them, and I just know what's going to happen. So I'm really excited about getting this going, putting it all together. And I just feel very fortunate that that I'm able to do this in, in a matter of speaking and still enjoy running too. So you should uh, invite people to come out and run with you. Well, uh, that would be great. Anybody and all are welcome. Welcome at any time. Uh, geez, man, uh, we can get lost in the trails on the road, and you won't run into a car or person from miles. And uh, actually, you'll be running with the horses, and that's a that's a wonderful feeling right there is to run with a herd of wild horses. I can't go as fast as they, but man, it's just wonderful to to be a part of and to see it. And anybody and all are welcome, especially as we get this thing going this spring. Uh, we have four mission groups coming out this summer, and the entire concentration is going to be on youth and the running and setting up some races and and uh, some events and that kind of thing. And so I'm real excited. This will be the first time that we've ever done this. Yeah, it sounds like it has uh, it has potential. It has a great deal of potential, and I think as far as transformation, what you and I talked at the very beginning, lives are going to be transformed because of it not because they're going to feel better but not only physically but mentally and spiritually and it'll open their minds and their hearts and everything else to all of what life has to offer instead of uh, holding the eyes down to the sidewalk and to the dirt trail and never looking up and seeing what's all around us well i'll move towards the exit here but do you have any uh links or anything that you'd like to share with people if you get on facebook our church has its own page and we'll be using that to advertise a lot of things coming up as we move into summer from spring. So I guess that would work, too. I, we don't have a website. I'm not that tech savvy. And even if I was, I, I, I don't have the time to maintain it. So, uh, you know, we're still looking for those kind of people to, to help us out with all of that. Our church's name is Morning Star Baptist Church. I do stay up to date on that. I do post my, my own personal workouts online and on Facebook. And I'm going to have all my guys and all my girls and all, anyone else who is going to run do this very same thing. We use DailyMile.com. Oh, yeah. I that's what it is. Yep, and, I do uh, too. Okay. All right. And so we're going to have them post their workouts on there and just all kinds of things as these open up. If you Please remember, this is all brand new for me too. And so this opportunity with you, Chris, just seems to, uh, you know, it's going to open up some other uh, opportunities to um, get our people out there as they, well, as they start running. One of the opportunities which we've, you've already discovered is you're going to have the ability to link your, yourself and your and your tribe in the larger sense to the online community of uh, runners and endurance athletes, which is a very spiritual and giving community. So yeah, I think yeah. you'll, everybody will benefit from that. I think so, too. I mean, I remember it from decades ago when I was running and racing and uh, starting again it's getting that flavor back, and it's just cool to be a part of it. And I really, 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 really want to involve our people in that because I truly believe with all my heart that once they get a hold of it, and they're natural athletes anyway, um, once they get a hold of it, man, they're just their attitudes will just completely change. And what we talked about at the very beginning, transformation. Transformation will take place 
place and, and things will start to happen. All right, Dean, I'll put uh, I'll find the, the Facebook page and stuff and I'll put that in the show notes for people. But cool. uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to have this uh, this important discussion with me. And well, I enjoyed Chris, it. I consider it a great, great honor, man. This is cool. This is just another thing about the running community that's really neat. Back when I started running, they did, we didn't have all of this, any of this, you know, and and they threw you know people would throw cans of beer at us and yell at us and curse yeah. at us try to run us over in cars and everything else we were weird and, and off the wall and everything else and now you know getting back into running i mean what a community yeah it's changed it's, just a, it's changed a great deal and and i'm just, just glad to be back and i know that our people are going to enjoy it and now with all of this modern technology involved in the running community online Geez, I'm really excited about what's going to happen. I really thank you for the opportunity. Maybe one day I'll get out to Boston and run that. Well, I'd rather I'd rather get to Montana and go chase some elk. Well, come on out. <laughs> uh, come on out. We're 110 miles southeast of Billings, the biggest city in Montana. Yep. All right, man. I'm going to let you go. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye for now. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Fitness, recovery, and the 2013 Boston Marathon. Experience gives me pause. These are interesting times for me. In two weeks, I'll be running my 15th Boston Marathon. I'm happy to be running after a fitful 18-month hiatus due to plantar fasciitis. I've been training since December as I slowly build back my strength and tolerance and avoid making the foot mad again. I started from zero in the fall. Sure, I was swimming, biking, and lifting weights, but I wasn't running. And as we all know, running is a very specific exercise. After a few attempts to come back over the year, I gave up. It seemed like any significant mileage or intensity would cause my heel to become painfully inflamed. My orthopedic surgeon was out of ideas and out of treatment options. I just stopped running, and more importantly, I stopped worrying about it. They say you can't start to heal until you reach bottom, and I guess that was the case. The heel pain never went away, but it receded to a 1 or 2 on the 10 scale, and I was, almost accidentally, able to start doing some short, easy runs. And I had no expectations. But it wasn't getting worse, so I started doing longer runs. And now, in a short few months, we have worked our way up to 20 miles at a time on the road without undue pain. Being the incorrigible animal that I am, somewhere towards the end of February, I started to think about the possibility of not just making it to the starting line at Boston again, not just comfortably running my favorite marathon, not just racing it well, but with the ultimate hubris, I began to think of qualifying times. And I haven't run more than three days a week and haven't been on the track for speed work at all. I have done some tough hill workouts and some long tempo, and the heel has stayed at that one or two level. I believe the activity has actually helped it heal, but of course I would believe that. Now here I am, steering into the grinning teeth of the granddaddy of all marathons. It's an old acquaintance of mine. The first four or five Bostons that I ran were during my initial return to racing when I was rediscovering the strength in my body that I had put away after high school. And these first few 
races were battles. Mono a marathon. Knockdown, drag out, battles to the finish. I set my marathon PR at Boston in these years, but every time I ran, it damn near killed me. It was always suffering and staggering at the end. Sometimes I made it, most times I ended up in that long death shuffle. When I got past the first half dozen or so, I decided not to fight with Boston anymore. I would qualify in the fall and run Boston in the spring. I would train enough to respect the race, but not to race it, not to qualify. Choosing instead to enjoy the race for the event and the spectacle of running that it is. Some of those summer through fall campaigns were multi-marathon odysseys where I would qualify by a whisker, by the skin of my teeth, real adventures, something Don Quixote would be proud of. The last few years before my injury, the option of qualifying in the fall went away as the world began to crave and overwhelm our little local marathon. In these years, I didn't train for Boston specifically, but ended up qualifying incidentally by coincidentally being in shape for something else at the right point in time. But now, with this new injury, knocking almost two years out of my running life, and the clock of life itself clicking inexorably ahead past my 50th year, I am once again in unknown and uncharted territory. There be dragons here. The way training is supposed to work is that you stress your body with calculated workouts and the body responds with the training effect and you get stronger and faster. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's not how it's been working for me over the last couple months. I made rapid improvements initially when I started up again, but that has stalled out as I peaked for Boston. The pace and time that I need to qualify at Boston this year is not onerous. I am, in fact, in one of the easier age positions. But I just can't seem to find that pace and the comfort level in the race to hold it for 26.2 miles. I've put in some good miles. I've run two 20-mile races, a 16-mile race, a dozen or so long training runs with purpose. I have seen signs of life in these races and runs, moments when I felt the strength and the pace rolling off comfortably like I remember. But I haven't found consistency, and that scares me. In my most recent race, the Eastern States 20-miler, I went out relaxed. I felt strong. I felt extremely comfortable at 10 to 15 seconds faster than my target marathon pace, but I ran out of gas at 12 miles, and I'm not sure if I could have tacked another 10K onto that effort the way my leg muscles were acting up at the finish. I may have gone out too fast, but the slower pace did not feel comfortable. I'm not sure if it would have made a difference. At this point, I've got two challenges to racing boss, and first, I don't feel like I have a sustained, relaxed pace that I can run at. That conservation pace, that cruising pace. And second, my legs don't seem to be able to sustain any pace for more than a half marathon before they start talking back. Add to this that I've still got an extra 10 pounds of belly fat that did not burn off, and I'm not confident. <laughs> there is no doubt that I can run it and finish it, but I'm hesitant to attack it, to grapple with it. The way I think about it, Boston can be cut into three sections. The first 16 to 17 miles are rolling down hills out of Hockington. 17 through 21, 22 are the hills in Newton. 22 in is that long grind into the Peru. I have tested every strategy on this course. The best strategy I have found 
is to hold back for the first 17, and it usually takes enormous effort to hold back. And then when you hit the hills, you can either attack them or just run steady through them. And finally, when you come off the back of the hills, you want to have something left to take advantage of the easier running. It all depends on being able to hold back and run effortlessly on the first 17. And without a comfortable pace in my toolkit, what the heck do I do? How do I hold back when I can't find that comfortable pace that's slow enough to relax but not too slow to lose time? And even if I'm able to nurse this fragile mess of a pace into Newton, what do I do in the hills? Struggling on the hills in Newton is worth at least two minutes. And fighting the hills can mean death marching those last five or six miles into the Peru. So if I get through the hills, what will I have left to take advantage of the fast bits? Anyway, I add it up. It seems to equal me walking the last 10K with my head down, shuffling in the gutter. But one can't forget the marathon miracle, can one? And this is the phenomena of showing up uncertain of your fitness and being buoyed by the energy of the race to excel. And I do believe in this, and I have experienced it myself. Based on my 20-mile times, those races I've run, I'm only 5 to 10 seconds off qualifying pace. Given this, you could argue that a well-executed race in combination with the marathon miracle could slide me in under the wire. I sure do miss those 59 seconds we used to get. But this is Boston. Boston eats the unprepared alive and spits them out. I know. I have the chew marks on my ass. What should I do? Try to race it? Go out at or near pace and try to conserve enough energy and hope to survive the hills? Or should I just take what I've got and go enjoy the day? Shake hands, kiss babies, leave the watch at home. It's a pickle. Whatever happens, I will show up reasonably fit at the starting line. And I will respect my great adversary and friend, the Boston Marathon. And for that opportunity, I am grateful. Maybe there are one or two more epic adventures left in this bag of bones. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep. And miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. Okay, folks, thanks for staying with me. Next time we speak, I may be recovering from the Boston Marathon. I've got a few things lined up, but nothing nailed down yet for the next show. We'll see. I've been trading emails with Dave McGilvery to see if I can get him on to talk about the big race. Uh, with the computer trouble I've been having, it's been hard to stay organized. So the status update is they sent my old hard disk out to take it apart. They sent it to the computer CSI service and to see if they can recover anything. Um, April 28th, yes, just three weeks away, we have the Groton Road Race in my hometown of Groton, Massachusetts. We've got everything lined up and ready to go. Hope to see you there. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do after Boston. I've been neglecting poor old buddy, the old wonder dog, in these weeks of training. He can't go out in the road with me. He can't just step out in the leash and do a 14-mile tempo run. One of us would die. Maybe I'll start working in some easy uh, barefoot runs, some cross-training in the woods, just to get him some miles uh, as, as the summer progresses. A couple of weeks ago, when there was still snow on the ground, Buddy and I were out on the trails 
when we saw a lady coming at us who had like six dogs with her. She had a pack. And it, I talked to her. It turns out she was a dog jogger. Now, if not for the mortgages, car payments, and tuitions that I'm responsible for, I'm pretty sure that would be my dream job. I'm heading down to San Antonio this weekend for a conference and hopefully can get some taper runs in on the Riverwalk. Nice little city, San Antonio. Here's another story from my week. I went in Monday morning for a teeth cleaning appointment. And as I'm in the chair, the hygienist says, I see you're wearing a marathon shirt. Do you run marathons? Have you run Boston? I And I had not yet had my coffee, but I said, sure, I've run a couple marathons, including Boston. And then she goes on to ask me if I've run the Groton Road Race because she has challenged the doctor, the local dentist there, to finish the 5K, and they're both going to run it. Now, folks, this is why I pitch in at the road race and donate my time for that. The mere fact that the race exists enables these types of interactions, these type of things to happen. Think about it this way. The Groton Road Race, any road race, is a catalyst for good. It's a social catalyst. That's why we do it. Going forward, now that my foot is feeling better... I may sprinkle in a handful of marathons over the summer. Maddie Hubba is trying to talk us all into going back down to Florida for a Mojo Loco type thing in the fall. And speaking of Mojo Locos, Steve is organizing a Boston uh, Mojo Loco in May. Yeah, just a, a month or so from now. So if you want to swing by and run around the Charles and love that dirty water with a bunch of creaky old podcasters, you can more than welcome to come on down. More the merrier. And one last thing. I'm almost at my goal for fundraising for Team Hoyt for Boston. And if you have a couple of shekels, you can go ahead over to my site and donate. It's for a good cause, and I'll be eternally grateful, or at least grateful enough to send a thank you note. So be good, and if you can't be good, be epic. And I'll see you out there. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. Thanks for listening, folks. I appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free podcast, a free service for you, because I like writing and I like telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlib.com, and most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say and would like to see if that's actually what I wrote, there you go. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Thank you for your attention. Do epic stuff and let me know if I can help. Ciao.